Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Friends, let us pray. Almighty God, creator of the heavens and earth, give victory to your beloved community. Amen. I'm at a painful intersection in my life. I did have COVID, and I want to thank you all so much for the support that you showed me during that time. I had a bit of a rough go, but I tested negative on Thursday, and then I tested negative again on Friday, and my little sister, who's a physician's assistant, gave me a clean bill of health. And so I'm back in the game. Uh, But if you have been following in the news, you know that right now there is a conflagration happening in Israel-Palestine. This is a place uh, that is very dear to my heart and soul for a constellation of reasons that I'm not going to get into here, but it ought to be a place of deep concern to all of us who call ourselves Christians. This entire book, from cover to cover, was created in that place. We talk about Bethlehem at least once a year, hopefully, around Christmas time. Did you know that Bethlehem today is a government capital. It is an industrial city that produces textiles. It is yet a place where hundreds of thousands of people live. But yet we imagine it through the lens of the Christmas story. I wish Americans wouldn't do that. I wish that they would view the Levant today through the lens of the modern world. Because we do something in America, and we say something that is not true. Oftentimes, when we turn on the television and we see whatever images the Western media chooses to show us about Israelis and Palestinians, I hear the knee-jerk response that, well, that's the way it's always been. People have always been fighting, and they'll always be fighting. That is not true. The reality is that the current situation in Israel-Palestine had its roots in the early 20th century. It is a product of the horrors of the Second World War and Western anti-Semitism. By that, I believe the belief amongst white Europeans that Jewish people needed to be expelled from Europe. And it is a modern conflict. However, I am also intimately aware that tomorrow, October 9th, is Indigenous Peoples Day. It is a day for Americans to set aside and reflect upon our relationship with all of the indigenous peoples of the world and the impact that capitalism, and specifically colonial capitalism, has had on those people. And in honor of that, I want to share a story. I have a friend. He's he's doing good. His name's George. uh, George Rishmawi. He might even see this. I don't know. He lives in Beit Sahur in the occupied Palestinian West Bank. I love him to death. He has a great sense of humor. He wanted to take me on a journey uh, when I was living in Bethlehem up to the north. Uh, There's a large city in the north called Kolkilia. And it is completely surrounded by the, the, the 
the wall that they've built, uh, that the Israeli Defense Forces built. And he wanted me to see it for myself. And so we, we, took, we rented a car and we drove north uh, through uh, the West Bank. And he told me a lot of great stories along the way. Um, I remember at one point he, he got really excited and he pulled the car over really fast. And uh, I thought we were going to crash. And he jumped out and he ran to a tree. It was a fig tree that he recognized. And he picked um, a few handfuls of figs and he brought them back to the car for us to eat. And I said, uh, do you, George, do you know the farmer whose figs we just purloined? Like, <laughs> he said, no. He said, food that is growing uh, on the edge of the road is for anyone who's hungry. Those are the best figs I ever ate. We were driving, uh, and he told me a story um, that I'm going to tell you. When George was a young man, he went on a camping trip in the Sinai Peninsula, and he had an opportunity to stay with a Bedouin family. Bedouin people have lived in that part of the world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. George was a, is an Orthodox Christian. He uh, worships at uh, the Orthodox Christian Church in Bethlehem, and his uh, wife is a Lutheran, and they have wonderful conversations together in Arabic uh, about Jesus that I can't understand. But he said that when he was camping with this Bedouin family, he sat with them while they were baking bread. And they took the, the uh, dough of the bread, and uh, they, they, f they flattened it. They were making flat pieces of bread. And um, George said, you know, that's interesting because that's sort of what my Jewish friends do at Passover. They cook an unleavened um, bread. They put it into the oven. And the Bedouin said, no, 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 it's not. It's just an old Bedouin tradition. And then after they had rolled the bread out, they took uh, and made a, a cross in the bread and before they put it into the oven. And uh, he said to them, that's kind of interesting because that's what we do with our Eucharist bread. We make a sign of a cross in it before we break it and eat it. And the Bedouin said, no, no, no. That's just an old Bedouin tradition. So nothing to do with it. And when they took the bread out, the husband and wife washed their hands and prayed before they ate it. And George said, now hang on a second. Every one of my Muslim friends does that on iftar. That's a Muslim tradition. And they said, no, 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 no. It's just an old Bedouin tradition. <laughs> the point of George's story was that the people of this book are still there. They live there. They're indigenous to that land. That Bedouin family today may be practicing some form of folk Islam, which is likely. But before that, they were Christians. And before that, they were Hebrews. And before that, it's likely they were Canaanites. And before that, perhaps Phoenicians. The religion changes. The politics change. But the wisdom and knowledge of the indigenous people of the land remains. And so, when I look to what is happening today in Israel-Palestine. 
I see a story that has been told over and over and over again. It is a story of a people on the land who have lived there for generations and a story of a people who want to take that land for reasons of their own. And so on Indigenous Peoples Day, I want for all of us to look to those First Nations, to honor, respect, and pray for them, and to simply acknowledge without defensiveness, without a sense of shame or anguish or grief, that this land was taken from someone. And if you, like me, want to take it one step further, put yourself in their shoes and think about what you would do if your land was taken by strangers, you and your family made homeless and forced to wander. Not simply because that is what has happened, but because that is the story of the people of this book. Jesus Christ is aware that he is preaching to a crowd of disciples and people who believe he is a prophet and has very deep and holy wisdom, but he is also intimately aware that there are people in that crowd who are under the employ of the Roman Empire, the Roman government. Imagine being a Palestinian person, living in the first century, living under Roman rule. Who are these people? What is Rome? It may as well be Mars. It's another world away. It doesn't show up on any maps, but yet here come their soldiers to remove you from your home, to take away your land and give it to somebody else, some procurate who perhaps lives thousands of miles away. Jesus knows that he is in relationship with the people who risk losing everything. Last week, um, as I was recovering, I took some time and I read a very detailed, well, I read Josephus and then I read a more modern history of the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem uh, in uh, the years uh, 66 through 72. It is absolutely, unspeakably horrifying what Rome did to the indigenous people of the Levant. It's an important part of that history but strangely, in our schools, we're often taught the rise and decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but we're not taught much about the so-called Pax Romani, the Peace of Rome, which is an absolute misnomer. The way that Rome ruled its vassal nations at the point of a sword. Jesus lived in that time. He lived under Roman occupation. And so he had to find a third way, a way for his people, the indigenous people of his community, to survive, to have hope, and to know that God was yet with them in their suffering. And he used parables a lot to tell this story. This chapter in Matthew is when things begin to get kind of heavy in the Jesus story. It shifts from being a story that would have been known to 
Anyone familiar with the books of the prophets? A story of a person knowing the truth of God and telling it to the people of God and being honest and perhaps being accepted or rejected. And it shifts into a much more terrifying and political story. Because this is the moment when the empire, Rome, begins to take notice. I think that many of us are probably familiar with the writings of Chief Cadillac or Red Cloud or um, Crazy Horse or many of the great indigenous leaders and prophets who spoke to the First Nation peoples of this land. And I think, especially when I reflect on reading the work of Black Elk, that there is a moment in the story when it goes from the proclamation of the truth, the words of hope, but at some point, General George Custer appears, and it changes from a story of wisdom into a story of violence. That is the hinge point in the Gospel of Matthew that we find ourselves at today. And Jesus knows this. Jesus asks us again and again and again in the Bible, who do you say that I am? It is the central question in all four Gospels. Some reply, you are John the baptizer. Others say Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus is speaking to us. Who do you say that I am? The answer to this question prefigures all of our beliefs about Jesus, the way in which we interact with him and his teachings. I believe uh, that the entire religion and practice and discipline of Christianity flows out of Jesus like a river. Notice I use the words practice and discipline. We have ourselves a lot of religion in America not a lot of it gets practiced. I thought the latest survey showed that 65% of Americans describe themselves as Christians. 14% of them attend a church. It's a little bit of a disparity there that confuses me. The religion that we practice is oftentimes undisciplined. Discipline comes from the Latin word disciplus, a person disciplus, a person who places themselves beneath the pedagogy of a master. But Americans don't like that. Americans like to be self-made. They like to be their own masters. You don't got to look very far to see that sort of thing today. Um, you know, when I when I was a kid growing up, if someone got sick or they broke their leg or whatever, uh, they would go to the doctor and. Uh, get a shot. But uh, we just went through a pandemic and somehow for some Americans those same doctors became the enemy. Where my little sister works in a wound care clinic they have a big sign on the wall that says this is a place of healing. We will not tolerate disrespect. I would have never seen something like that in the 80s or the 90s. What madness drove people to that? The myth 
that we are self-made. Um, Jesus is constantly reminding his disciples and the people around them that they come from deep and ancient wisdom, that they are not self-made, that they did not invent this system, and that they ought not make the mistake that I call the, well, I have a lot of different words for it, but it's the idea that you can just make things up as you go. It's a very American myth. Jesus wants us to look to the prophets. And so he gives us this line today. He says this in quoting from Isaiah. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And wasn't it amazing in our eyes? What is the stone that the builders rejected? What stones do we as people who call ourselves Americans reject, dehumanize, look down upon? The, uh, <laughs> there is one, <laughs> in the history of the United States, there has been exactly one uh, presidential candidate who has run from prison. By that I mean he ran his campaign from a prison cell. This is true. Eugene Debs, running in the, uh, 18, the election, I think, of 1886. Uh, he was in jail. We might get another one here shortly. I don't know. But responding to the judge. And these words are recorded in the, in the Hall of Honor, the U.S. Department of Labor. He said to the judge, Years ago I recognized my kinship with all living things. And I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. While there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. Um, his, his defense attorney probably advised him against that. And I don't imagine uh, the current batch of presidential candidates embracing that position. But in the gospel story, Jesus is telling us that God does these inversions. God takes these things of the world that are so ridiculed and looked down upon. People that have been stripped of their humanity, beaten, forced into refugee camps and open-air prisons. The men and women who languish in our prisons today in America that God takes those stones and of them makes cornerstones, literally the support of the arch. That is a hard thing to understand. Yet, it is the story of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And so, I don't want to imply that because a person is poor or imprisoned or walked upon, disenfranchised, that we ought to look to them for our salvation. I only want to caution the Christian that we, with absolute clarity of mind and purpose, 
Tread carefully. Tread very carefully in times of strife and conflict such as this. Because we have this story. And this is not a story of celebrities becoming president. It's not a story of the very, very wealthy swooping in from on high and saving the day. It is not a story of how to get rich quick or how to live a long, comfortable, sleepy life. It is a story of people, almost all of them indigenous, being confronted with the terrifying madness of empire, putting their faith in God, and then entering the kingdom of God with their eyes wide open. And as American Christians, we can walk beside them. And though their pain may not be our own, we can go to them, serve alongside them, and acknowledge their pain. That's what tomorrow is about, acknowledging pain. I want to close with uh, a quick reminder. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. The question is often raised then, if God has a preferential option for the poor, does that mean that God loves the poor and marginalized more than me? A person has two children of the same age. The first child goes off into the world and is successful and has a beautiful home and a lovely spouse and raises children and has a good life. The second child meets with disaster, falls into the traps of addiction and gambling, spends time in prison, is very, very sick. And the parent in their strife goes to that second child and cares for them binds their wounds, helps them in their sorrow, turns themselves inside out to help fix that poor, broken child. And the first says, have I not been your good and faithful child this whole time? Why are you lavishing so much care and affection upon them? Do you love them more than me? Of course not. Of course not. The parent has no arithmetic of love, wouldn't withhold love from that first child if they needed it, but sees the broken places in the world and out of their own anguish goes there. If you are in pain and anguish, if you are dispossessed and walked upon, God is right there beside you. God's heart is the first to break. But if you are more like me, person who lives in relative comfort and ease, never doubt for a second that God has anything but love and compassion for you, but that God also has expectations. And the expectation is that you will go with Jesus to those broken and hurting people, and you will work with them, heal their wounds, and carry them into the kingdom of God. That is your purpose as a disciple 
and it is the most noble and honorable way that we can get through this life. Please pray for the innocent in the Levant, whether they're Palestinians or Israelis, or any of the other dispossessed minority groups in that area that we don't manage to hear about, don't get in the news. Pray for them and the horror that they're experiencing. And pray for peace. But do not for one second give in to the belief that nothing can fix this. That's not what this says. It can be fixed. And it is our responsibility to be a part of the solution. Brothers and sisters, we have everything that we need. When Jesus turns to us and says, who do you say that I am? I'm going to simply say, you are the one who I am following. And I will go where you go. Pray without ceasing. And never forget that the victory is secure. Amen.